0: Um, you know if you've been watching the videos at all pastor steve and i have been communicating we just felt led individually we didn't like collaborate on this but as this thing's been unfolding for the last couple of months just to just uh, just each week kind of seek the lord on where to go with a word for the fellowship and um this week was kind of no different and so this is something that's kind of been stirring in me and steve uh pastor steve checked on me last night how's it going i'm like still waiting Still waiting, not sure, but I really feel like God just kind of kind of solidified some things today. So I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 21, which for some of us is a fantastic and familiar chapter, and um, I'm going to pick up about halfway through um, in verse 15. So John, the gospel of John chapter 21, and starting in verse 15, give you a second to get there. And then um, I'm going to just read it. I'm reading from the ESV. You guys can just follow with me. John 21:15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, you used to walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And This he spake or said to show by what kind of death he would glorify God, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say that he was not going to die, but said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Lord, we thank you for this passage. It's fun just to read it out loud, and and we find ourselves just there with them and just excited to hear what you want to say to us tonight. But I'm asking, Lord, that as we hear this, some for the first time, some for the who knows how many times. But I pray, Lord, we'd hear it like for the first time for all of us, and that you'd speak to us directly as a church, as individuals in this church. Lord, I pray that we would have a specific and prophetic word for every one of us. And Lord, don't let us just hear what you say to us and go away unchanged. That would be a shame. Jesus, change us tonight. Speak to us tonight. Give us a heart ready to respond to what you say in our lives tonight. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Oh, I've been waiting 10 weeks to hear somebody else say amen back to me. That's awesome. Did I keep saying amen on the videos? Like, amen? Did, I can't remember if I did or not. Anybody know? Anybody watched it? Okay. Did Josh? Okay, thanks. I was asked yesterday, a friend of ours was over, and they asked me if I'd ever been to Israel. And I said that um, I actually have been. In fact, I've had the blessing of being there nine times. We used to lead you know, tours over there at my old church. And, and it's one of my favorite places on the planet. When I was asked that question, my, I automatically got excited because Steve the same way. Like you start talking about Israel and I just get pumped because there's just something about being where Jesus was. It's not like you're more holy or something if you pray from there or something like that. It's just amazing one of my favorite places in my favorite place of Israel is in the Galilee on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's a little place called Tabgah. And there's a Franciscan church right on that north shore of Tabgah that commemorates what we just read, the event that we just read. They're, they think that that's the spot where Jesus restores Peter back into the ministry. And, and it's just kind of surreal being there because there's, there's this beach there and the, the waters of the Galilee have kind of receded, so they're actually a little bit more of a beach. And you can almost just picture this scene uh, in your mind. And so it's kind of with great affection. I've got to teach this passage on that beach many times. And so it's kind of an amazing place, but enough about me. Anyways, um, I love this story, not just because it brings up that memory, but because it touches my heart on a lot of different levels. Um, Just to kind of bring you up to speed as to what's going on, um, this is what's happened. Jesus has died. He's resurrected three days later. He appeared to his disciples and he told them to go back up into Galilee and that he would meet them there. And it was in Galilee, by the way, where Jesus commissioned them, gave them the great commission and all of that. So the guys go back up to Galilee, and what the first part of this chapter that I didn't read informs us is that as they're there, Peter, amongst all the other dudes, are there, and Peter, not real good at waiting around for the Lord to appear to him, says, I'm going fishing. Now, just real quickly, remember, Peter is still, I believe, very much reeling from his Epic failure where he denied Jesus three times. You guys understand that, right? In Jesus' greatest moment of need, of support, Peter says, I'll be damned to hell if I even know him. He didn't just cuss like he said some cuss words. It says he swore an oath. The idea was, I'll be damned if I even know Jesus, cock-a-doodle-doo. And Luke tells us that right when he said that Jesus was being escorted out and they locked eyes. And Peter ran out and wept. Well, we also know from other accounts that Jesus has already appeared to Peter privately. I'm sure that they've kind of kind in some way made things right. He's back with the group again, but he's up there and he says, you know, I'm going fishing. And you get the sense that he's saying, you know what? I know I'm probably forgiven. I know all that, but I'm pretty sure Jesus is done with me because I've blown it a little too much. And so he says, I'm going to go back to the only thing I know. I'm going to go back to my old life I know he called me away from this, but this is what I'm going to do. Isn't that, by the way, what we do when we feel like we fail God? We tend to just say, I'm going to go back to my old life. So he goes back. He, he you know, grabs the other dudes who are fishermen by trade, so it's kind of like normal. They go out. They push off. They're about 100, 100 yards offshore. They're fishing all night, and they come up with nothing. These are like professional fishermen, which, by the way, gives me hope because I am the worst fisherman on the planet. But these are pros, and they came up with nothing which, gosh, I'm tempted to talk about that. By the way, when you go back to your old life after you've encountered Jesus and been called by Jesus, you always come up with nothing. You can't go back to the old life once you've had a taste of Jesus, amen? And so he goes back and fittingly catches nothing. But some time goes by, sun's rising, some guy from the shore saying, children, did you catch any fish? And they're like, no, thanks for that. And he says, throw your net on the other side. As if the fish, there's like an invisible shield underneath the water and they can't go under the boat. Like, do you guys understand that going to the other side does absolutely nothing unless you're Jesus? This is so Jesus. He's like, throw the net on the other side. They throw the net on the other side. Bam, the fish hit. They pull it in. It's like sinking the boat. And John goes, That's the Lord. And Peter's like, Really? He's a little slow. He's like, Really? No, we just happen to have a zillion fish on this side of the boat. Like, That's the Lord. Peter's kind of stripped down for work, grabs his coat, jumps in the water, swims back. He's like, forget the boat, forget John, forget the fish. I just went to get to Jesus. He gets to Jesus, and guess what? There's Jesus on the shore with, a coals, you know, with coals and a fire, fish on it. And he's like, hey, bring some of the fish that you caught. Ha, I actually caught them, but I'll say you caught them. Bring them over here. They have breakfast together. They have this amazing time. It says that they all knew it was Jesus. They didn't like, ask him, are you really Jesus? They knew it was Jesus. You guys remember the story? So it's just an amazing time of just like fellowship and it says it's the third time that Jesus appeared to them. But then we come to the part that we read. And what we read was, in essence, or what is known for, listen, of the restoration of Peter, his restoring Peter back into a position and usefulness as an apostle, as a pastor as we'll see restores him. In fact, there's a lot that takes place here, and I want to look at this next section. We're going to look at the fact that Jesus restores Peter. If you want to take some notes, this is kind of a good way to work through the chapter. Number one, he restores Peter. We're going to see him commission Peter. We're going to see him invite Peter. We're going to see him warn Peter, and we're going to see him exhort Peter. And if you miss those, leave. No, I'm just kidding. I'll go over them again in a moment. But first of all, what this is mainly known for, this section, is that Jesus is restoring Peter back to a place of just usefulness in the ministry and full, just like, you're back in, buddy. You see, what happens? Jesus gives Peter a chance to redeem himself for every time that Jesus denied, or that Peter denied Jesus. Do you guys understand that? For every time that Peter said, I don't know the guy, I don't know the guy, I don't know the guy, Jesus gave him a chance to redeem himself publicly with the guys by asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And so by doing that, guys, by the way, I love that first time he asked him, this is so wonderful that Jesus is restoring, but how he does this is so beautiful because Jesus is not sweeping under the rug or not dealing with the heart issues. This is actually a little bit painful, I think, for Peter, but nonetheless, Jesus is just dealing, listen, with it head on. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Did you catch that little phrase, more than these? You ever wonder why that phrase is there? Because when Jesus told Peter originally that he would deny him, Peter says, in essence. These guys will probably deny you because you can't really trust these guys. But I will never deny you, God. In essence, he was saying, I, w- I love you more than these guys. And Jesus asked him, he says, so Peter, do you love me more than these? That's, that, I bet that stung a little bit. You see, Peter no longer just you know, chest puffed out with self-confidence and self-reliance, he's been cut down, he's been humbled, and he realizes something about himself. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. I'm not as capable. I'm fallible, and I'm, I messed up, and I messed up hard, and I was way too confident in my own abilities, and he says, you know that I love you. And he asked him a second time, do you love me? You know that I love you. And then that third time he asks him, and it says that Peter was what? What does it say? How is Peter feeling? It's not a trick question. It's in your... Bible. He was grieved. By the way, we could go off on the fact that Jesus, when he asked him if he loved him, he was actually using the highest word for love, agapeo. Do you agapeo me? And he was answering, I phileo you, which is a brotherly love. But then on the last time when Jesus says, do you love me? He, Jesus uses the phileo love. says, do you phileo me? And he says, you know that I do. But what's interesting about that whole thing to me is that Peter's grieved. He's brokenhearted. I used to read this like this, like, and he asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And, and it says, um, you know everything. You know that I love you. I've always kind of read it like that, like Peter's a little chippy about it. You know everything. You know I love you. Quit it. But I don't think that was his tone. It says he was grieved. I think Peter responded to something more like this, like, you know everything, Jesus. and You know that I love you. And he's drawing him out. I love this passage because Jesus is restoring Peter back to a place of being used in the kingdom. He didn't ignore his sin. He he dealt with it. It was dealt with on the cross, but he's putting him back in the place. Anybody ever failed in this room before, after being a Christian? Anybody glad that God restores us and uses us and gives us grace? I failed bad. I failed real bad early on in the ministry to a place where I needed to actually step down as a youth pastor. And I was humbled. And I had a big wake-up call in my own life that I am very capable of sinning. And Jesus has been so gracious to me. You know, I almost think it's unfair sometimes in the ministry There'll be pastors and church leaders that have a moral failure or some kind of money thing or power hungry or anger, and and they're rightfully so disciplined and removed. But I always question, how come there's not a path for them to be restored? And sometimes the consequences are so severe that that can't maybe necessarily happen. But you know what? I don't think they sinned near as much as Peter did. I mean, a moral failure is serious and bad and there's, and there's consequences and all that stuff. But at least they didn't say, I'll be damned to hell if I even know Jesus. Like, to me, that seems a little bit heavier. And yet Jesus restores this guy. I think Jesus is way gracier than we think he is. And grace is scandalous. And grace is shocking. And he says, you're back in 100%, buddy. It restores him loves him. So appreciate that about my Jesus. But he not only restored him, I don't know if you noticed this too, he commissioned him with each time that he said, do you love, oh by the way, I, I want to make another point on that quickly. Um, he said, do you love me? Do you notice that that was the question? He didn't say, this was not what Jesus asked. Do you promise to try harder next time? You promise to do better? Aren't you glad that he'd never ask that? Because what, what's the core issue? Do you love me? Jesus wasn't asking him to take pledges and say he'll never do it again and, and have a chart. And you know, Isn't that what we do sometimes? Jesus, I, I know I failed, coach. I'll do better next time. He's not looking for that. He's just saying, do you love me? Because that's the core issue. Because if you love Jesus, the rest is details. By the way, can I ask you a question? Do you love Jesus? Don't answer this out loud, Mitch. I've been waiting 10 weeks to pull you. Do you, listen, do you love Jesus? Let me put it to you this way. If somebody else were to describe your walk with the Lord, would they say, that girl just loves Jesus? Or would they be like, they're pretty smart. They keep the rules real good. Nothing wrong with those things. Or would they say, that guy just loves Jesus. I want that to be what people say about me. I want that to be what people say about our church. Those guys, they're kind of screw-ups still. They got a lot of issues from the top down, but those guys love Jesus. Amen? Amen. No offense, Steve. I was referring to myself, <laughs> not you. <laughs> well, he not only um, restores them, but he commissions them. I love this. And I'll just kind of go through this quickly. But notice each time he says, Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Okay. I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to feed my sheep. You see, Jesus is obviously the good, great, Chief Shepherd. He's the one that really accentuated that shepherd sheep relationship with the people and kind of gave that word picture and used that figure of speech. And he's communicating that to Peter. You know what he's doing? He's literally calling Peter to be a pastor. Yes, Peter was an apostle, but he's also Pastor Peter. He says, because he says, look, I want you to do what I do. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to teach them. I want you to lead them. I want you to take care of my people and and protect them. He's literally calling him to be a pastor. I love this. I know this because in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, as an elder among you elders, I want to encourage you shepherd or feed the flock that is among you. The word feed there literally means shepherd or pastor the flock that is among you. And so it's like... He's being commissioned to be a pastor, and just Jesus is giving him uh, that position, and of course, as an apostle as well. But he not only restores him, and he not only um, commissions him, but notice this. This is so great. Look at verse 18, because um, he says, do you love me? He said, okay, feed my sheep. Now, look at verse 18. It's like Jesus puts the clutch in, shifts gears, and does kind of a, a right turn here, sharp. He says, I truly, truly say to you, when you are young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to. But when you're old, somebody else will dress you and they'll take you where you don't want to go. Now, I'm really glad that verse 19 was inserted because I would know, not know what the heck he was talking about right there. Anybody with me? Like, that's like very cryptic. I don't know what you're talking about. But John, who wrote this, puts a little parenthetical explanation. He says, this he said to show by the kind of death he would glorify God. Let's unpack that a little bit. He says, you're restored, forgiven. I love you, and and I'm commissioning you. You're going to serve me, and guess what? You're going to die. You're going to be in the ministry, and you're going to grow old. Notice that little tidbit. When you're old, you're going to have a long, fruitful ministry, and then you're going to glorify me with your death. First of all, notice this. It says this was to signify what kind of death he was to glorify God. Uh, How did Peter die? Well, we know this for certain. And in AD 64 in Rome, Peter was crucified. There's another tradition that says that Peter was crucified upside down. Nobody knows that for sure. It's kind of impossible to verify that. But it is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, certain that in AD 64, he was crucified. That Peter himself, at an older age, goes to the cross himself and dies. But notice what it says. He says, and this is the way that you will glorify me when you die. Isn't that a trip? Listen, why does Peter's dying glorify Jesus? Is that morbid or something on Jesus' side? Listen, catch what he's saying here. He's saying, look, you're gonna die and it's gonna glorify me. Why is that important? Because basically what he's telling Peter is, you're not gonna deny me again, Peter. You're gonna have another opportunity. You're gonna be faced with a serious situation and you're not going to blow it. In fact, you're gonna live for me and you're gonna end up dying for me and it's gonna bring glory to me, amen? I mean, it sounds a little twisted, but how encouraging actually would that would have been for Peter because just like Peter or Jesus the first time said, hey, you're gonna be sifted and when you're restored, in other words, you're gonna blow it. This time, Jesus is saying, hey, you're gonna die for me, meaning you're not gonna blow it. You're gonna stand firm the next time you're super tested. And I think personally, that absolutely encouraged Peter, that his death would glorify God. I don't want to sound morbid about my own life, but listen, I hope my death glorifies God. I hope that when I die, it brings glory to Jesus. I think of, and I'm reaching here, so forgive me if I don't have the, the, the names and everything It's out of first things in the Old Testament, yes. Balaam and Balaam. And Balaam says, let me die the death of the righteous. Do you know that there's only one way to die the death of the righteous? You got to live the life of the righteous. You got to live for Christ while you're alive. Amen? And I want when I die for it to be said, he had a lot of issues. He had a lot of problems. He wasn't perfect, but he loved Jesus and he lived for Jesus and he didn't deny Jesus. Amen? So, all that to say is, he kind of gives him this cryptic warning. He restores him. He commissions him. He kind of warns him, slash, encourages them. And then he invites him. And, and I think this is so wonderfully subtle. He says in verse 19, and after saying this, and I think there's a pause there, after saying this, what? You're going to die. He says, follow me. So, in light of that, Peter, here's the next thing come and follow me. That invitation to follow him is the exact language that Jesus used for his disciples years earlier, isn't it? In fact, that's the same thing he said to Peter on the shores of the Galilee three years earlier. Follow me. Follow me. I want to come back to that. I think that's the heart of what we want to talk about tonight. But since we're still in the introduction, verse 20 Peter turned, now this is interesting, he says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And So at some point, he and Jesus kind of get up and walk, and then when it says the disciple whom Jesus loved, the guy that leaned on the chest of Jesus, and that's a reference to John. John wrote this, it's called the book of John, he wrote it, and John was the one that at the Last Supper leaned back and, on, and laid on Jesus' chest, they all would have been kind of laying on one arm, that's how they ate dinner, believe it or not. And and he leaned on him and said, hey, who's the one that's going to deny you? And this is just a way that is identifying that it's John that's following them. By the way, parenthetically, I love that John identifies himself as the one whom Jesus loved. I love that. Because he could have said, the apostle John. But he's like, you know what? You know where my identity is? Listen, I'm a guy who's loved by Jesus. And I'll tell you, by the way, it is a red letter day when you finally realize that that's your identity. When you're not a surfer, when you're not a pastor, when you're not a construction worker, when you're not an officer, when you're not a this or a that, when you say, you know what, you can strip all those things away, at the end of the day, I'm secure, I'm good to go. Why? Because Jesus loves me. And I'm loved by him and that's all that matters. I love that last song we sang, I'm loved by you. And if that doesn't solidify your identity and who you are, then you need to go and get alone with Jesus and do some heart work because whatever it is you're leaning on to be your identity can be taken from you in a heartbeat. We know that, don't we, right now? Because if your identity is in your job, in your career, in, the, in your money, in your stuff, how, much, how many have learned that in a moment that can be taken away? Your health can be taken away. I'm a fitness guy. Well, your health can be taken away. And I don't mean to say that, like, this is kind of a side point. I'm going through it quickly, but I don't mean to make it a light point. Because, guys, this is core. Who are you? Who are you, really? And I hope that you can say, you know what, the core of who I really am, I'm just a person that is loved by Jesus. And that is enough to fill me. Amen? Well, where was I? Oh, yeah. So he basically sees John coming, and this is great. Listen. Peter turns kind of, and you can see this happening, right? Peter says, Lord, what about this guy? Now, I don't think, this is my opinion, you can interpret it a different way maybe, but I don't think Peter was just being like, well, what's gonna happen to him? I'm gonna die, what's gonna happen to him? Like, that's not fair. I don't think that was the tone. I I believe Peter and John became very close after the blow it, after the failure, and because John's the one that kind of brought him back in, and I believe, you know, we see them together in the book of Acts, I believe they were tight. and And I wonder if it was just like, Oh, Lord, if I'm going to die, what about John? Now, I want you this is where I want you to, if I lost you, come back in, because listen to how Jesus responds. This is, to me, the, the crux of the whole deal. The way that Jesus responds, I don't think it was harsh, but I think it was emphatic. It says this. Jesus, um, he said, Lord, what about this man? Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, And in my mind's eye, I picture them stopping. It doesn't say this. I'm just saying this is how I picture it. I picture them stopping. I picture Jesus looking them square in the eye and says, if it is my will for him to live until I come back, what is that to you? You follow me. I love this. Now, just to kind of complete what was said after that, they kind of misunderstood it, those who heard it, because then they were like, "Jesus said John's not going to die till he comes back," and it's like he didn't say that, okay? Just so you know, if you've ever been misquoted, like Jesus feels your pain, right? Um, he's like, I didn't say that he wasn't going to die. They're like I just said, if it's my will that... and what was Jesus really saying? What happens to John is none of your business because we're talking about you right now, Peter. And Peter, you're not getting what I'm trying to say. Peter, what I'm trying to say to you is get your eyes off of him, get your eyes off of everybody else and you come and follow me. And that, I believe with all my heart, is the word of the Lord for many of us tonight. You follow Me. Now, of course, I can't just leave it there. I've got to explain it to death. So let's talk for a second. Of generally speaking, about well, well, what? Because this is the way my mind works. Okay, and maybe you're like me, maybe you're not, but I, I have the microphone. So listen. What does it mean? What does it mean? To be a follower. I mean, we could talk about this forever and ever a lot. There's a lot to it. I'm not going to try to delve to the depths of it. But let's just for a few minutes just discuss a couple points. What does it even mean to be a Jesus follower? Right? Because if he's saying, come and follow me, I think it's fair to ask, okay, well, what does it look like? What does it mean to be a Jesus follower, to be a disciple? If you take notes, I want you to jot a couple of things down. I'm going to fire some, a lot of scriptures at you, so I think it's good to write them down because you're not going to have time to look at them all. But number one, when when we talk about being a follower of Jesus, I think that it's important that it starts with number one. Well, before I get to number one, that's why I have notes. Um, As we're talking about what does it mean to follow Jesus, what does that word mean? What does the word to follow even mean? Let me just give you a quick definition. To follow means to come after. We know that, right? We're driving somewhere, we're going to cry. Hey, follow me. You just go where the person in front of you is going. We all played follow the leader. Where the leader goes, you go. When the leader stops, you stop. When the leader does something, you do that. We probably could end the sermon right there because that's basically what Jesus is calling us to do. But it also means, in the Greek, it also meant not only to come after, but it also meant to adhere to the teachings of somebody. And we get that, right? People would be, oh, I'm a follower of rabbi so-and-so. Oh, I follow the teachings of blah, blah, blah. Right? Do you guys understand what I'm saying? And that's kind of encompassing, but we'll we'll, we'll kind of pick it apart a little bit more. First of all, if we're talking about following Jesus, I think it all begins with, number one, now you can take notes, number one, you got to know him. It starts with knowing Jesus. Now, this is a simple but all important point. You know, when Jesus was on the earth in his ministry, he had a lot of followers, didn't he? Thousands and thousands and thousands, and that is not an exaggeration, followed him in crowds up on the mountain, down by the sea. But though he had a lot of followers, there wasn't a lot of people that actually knew him or believed in him. But there was always just a mass of people that was curious about him, wanted something from him, kind of fascinated by him. I, I, I shouldn't let my mind wander like this, but I was wondering, I wonder if Jesus had an Instagram account, what that would look like. Oh, I don't mean like what the pictures would be, like selfie at the Sea of Galilee with Peter or something like that. But I wonder how many followers he would have. Is that nerdy to say that? It's kind of nerdy. Is that hip and relevant? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm not necessarily trying to think of it that way, but it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, like in social media, all these followers, you know, not all your followers really know you. Does that make sense? And it's not enough to be curious or fascinated or have, you know, just want something from Jesus, you have to know him, not know about him. You can know about somebody from their their profile, you can know about somebody by reading about them, but you don't really know that person. And there's a lot of people, listen, and I think it's appropriate, that have a weird fascination with Jesus, they lump Jesus in with other teachers, they know about Jesus, they come to church, but they don't know Jesus. And Jesus is the one and I don't, I'm not ashamed of this term. I know it gets mocked um, and, and used in a flippant way, but I, I don't care because Jesus coined this phrase. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. You have to be born not only physically, you have to be born spiritually. And unless you are born spiritually, you, are, you cannot be a Jesus follower. Does that make sense? Because you'll know about him, but you don't have a relationship with him. A person must come and believe that Jesus is God Almighty, the Son, that he came to this earth, that he lived as a man, that he lived perfectly without sin, that on the cross, he was a substitution for you and for me, and that God judged Jesus for my sin and for your sin on that cross, and that he died for that sin, and that three days later, he raised from the dead, conquering sin, overcoming death, and that if anybody will by with the hand of faith, receive the free gift of salvation, they can be saved. And it is at the moment that you humble yourself and repent and ask Jesus to forgive you and for him to come into your life, that's when you are born again, amen? If you cannot answer that question, then I question whether you know Jesus. Because Jesus said, not Jason, not Pastor Steve, not any other pastor, Jesus said, you have to be born again. You can't know about me, you have to know me. So it all starts with knowing Jesus. Do you know him tonight? There might be some watching. There might be some listening. Have you been born again? Can you emphatically say, I am saved and going to heaven not on my own merit, but upon the merit of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross, through his resurrection for me? I'm born again because of him. Because that's where it all starts. You cannot be a follower of Jesus until you've been born again by the spirit of Jesus. Amen? Well, that's where it all starts. And... Unfortunately for some, that's where it ends. To be a follower of Jesus, it all starts with being born again. But it was meant to be much more than just being born again. I don't say this like I have some percentage or th- like, I just say this more from my own observations in life and as a pastor, like, there are a lot, I think there's a lot of people that are born again going to heaven and are loved by God, but that really don't want to go any further in this idea of following Jesus, But when Jesus talked about you being a Jesus follower, following Him, He used some pretty incredible language. So it starts with being born again. It starts with knowing Him. But it also involves, listen, an exclusive devotion to Jesus alone. Listen to what I'm saying. It entails, it involves an exclusive devotion to Jesus alone. I'm going to kind of speed this up a little bit. I'll give you some verses, Matthew 4 and other verses too. Starting in around verse 20, when Jesus is calling some of the disciples away from their fishing industry, it says, they left their boats, they left their dad, they left their nets, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus called Matthew, Levi, he, it says that Levi left, quote, everything and followed him. When Jesus was interacting with a rich young ruler, which, by the way, it says he loved him, it said, you need to go sell everything you have and come and follow me. Jesus said something crazy in Luke 20, uh, chapter 14 when he said, if anyone, verse 26, comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." I don't know about you, but that's heavy. Now, Jesus does not want us to hate anyone, much less of our family. He's not necessarily calling us to quit our jobs. He's not saying we need to sell all of our things. What he was communicating clearly is there can be nothing and no one that competes with our devotion to Jesus Christ. He alone has to sit on the throne of our heart exclusively. That's fair, isn't it? Well, that's what we ask of a bride. It's what we ask of a groom when they get married, forsaking all others. Done a lot of weddings. Did you know that the way that a wedding is designed is when the bride, in our traditional like Western marriages, when a, when a bride comes down the aisles, how are the aisles usually seated? You've got immediate family, close family, a little bit closer family, uh, distant cousins, some guy you met at the park. You know, like, it just kind of diminishes as it goes back. But as the bride comes down the aisle, she's passing by those people and giving them her back. Giving them her back, giving them her back. So she literally stands at the front and gives her own family her back because she says, Now I'm married to another and I'm solely, exclusively devoted to him. And that is the kind of devotion that Jesus is looking for and wants. And that's crazy. That's amazing. Many, many people I believe, and I've been guilty, I'm sure, at times in my life, are hindered by that because there's other devotions, there's other loves of their life, and Jesus never makes it to the top. That's what kept the rich young ruler from following Jesus was his money. Don't let any other affection, don't let a boyfriend, don't let a girlfriend, don't let a job, don't let money steal your affection from Jesus. What if he asked you to give up everything? Well, let's move on, because that wasn't quite heavy enough. Yeah. Lastly, with two sub points, it starts with knowing him. He, it, it involves an exclusive devotion to him. But thirdly, as I thought about this, it also involves obedience to him, doesn't it? To be a follower of Jesus, even in the definition of what it means to be a follower, to adhere to a teaching of somebody, there has to be a level of obedience in two ways, and this is just me thinking this through, you know, I'm sure you can think of other areas, but in two ways, this is the way I look at it. It involves obedience, number one, in his word. We need to obey what Jesus said, amen? That's pretty straightforward. If we're gonna say we're a follower of Jesus, it stands to reason that we would obey the things he tells us to do. And it was Jesus who says, by the way, in Luke 6:46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? <laughs> How many of you guys have been smacked in the face when you read that one in your morning devotions? It says in uh, Matthew 28, 20, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go into all the nations, you know, disciple the nations, teaching them to what? Observe all that I've commanded you. It says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, by the way, are not grievous. Um, We're not gonna get into that. By the way, Jesus narrowed down the commandments to love God with all your heart and love people, amen? Amen. We're not talking about keeping the 600 plus laws in the Old Testament, but the the, the idea is, do we have a heart that obeys the, the clear things in God's word by his grace, do we obey? Do you have a heart of obedience? Do you do what he says? Let me put it to you this way. You cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus and live a lifestyle that's contrary to the things that he says in his word. Bottom line, you can call yourselves a lot of other things, but you can't call yourself a Jesus follower. I'm not talking about batting a thousand. None of us bat a thousand. We all mess up. We all fail. I'm talking about a habitual lifestyle of saying, I know the word says this, but I'm gonna live my life like this. Cool, call yourself a lot of things, but don't call yourself a Jesus follower because Jesus followers obey the one they're following. Again, we all fail. We all fall short. That's not what I'm talking about. Praise God that when we fail, we can repent and be forgiven. And keep. But I mean, what I'm talking about is the trajectory of your life, is the heart passion of your soul to obey him. Of course, we don't do it perfectly all the time, but is that your heart's passion? Do you read the word with a preconceived idea of this? I'm going to obey what it says, or I'm going to weigh it out, see if I like it and do what I want to do anyway. And I've lived that life. To be a follower of Jesus means you obey him, not only in his word, but listen, in his will. Now, this is where it gets a bit subjective, I think, in his will for your life. To give you some scriptures for that, I'll give you just some some real common ones that we kind of know. I think about Matthew 16, verse 24, where Jesus says something light like this, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would like to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says it often. He says it several different ways. The point is, is that to be a follower of Jesus, it involves death to my will and complete obedience to his will in my life. We're to take up our crosses and die to ourselves. You see, I have a will for my life. I have have my wants, but here's the thing. When, when my wants are conflicted with Jesus' wants, mine die every time. At least that's what they're supposed to. I am to be, as a Jesus follower, completely abandoned to Jesus' will for my life, regardless of what my will is for my life, regardless of what my parents' will is for my life, regardless of what my boss's will is for my life, or my friend's will is for my life. I am absolutely accountable to one person, and that is my Lord Jesus. So I am called as a follower to be fully abandoned. To his will and die to my own amen now by the way it sounds so heavy but there's a little secret jesus says when you die to your will and you live for mine guess what you find life you actually find life he says later in john i think it's eight forgive me for not knowing the reference off the top of my head that when we follow him we experience the light of life it sounds like oh this is so heavy not really when I follow Jesus with my whole heart, when I obey him, when I submit my will to him, when I know him and love him, I experience the life the way it was meant to be. Is it hard? Is it challenging? Is there tough stuff? Yeah. But it's life. Amen? By the way, just real quick before I hammer this down, I just want to say a couple of things about how this looks daily. Like, okay, well, how does it look like to, to know God's will in my life? And how does this look like to, to follow Jesus? I'm going to fire these at you really quick. Number one, it looks like this. It's daily. It's not following him once a week. It's a daily walk. It's a daily follow. It means you learn to have a prayer life because prayer is how you communicate with Jesus. It means you read your Bible, and that's a learning curve. I know that the first time I started reading my Bible, like, what the heck does this mean? That's why you come to church. That's why you read your Bible, but you read your Bible. You can't obey him if you don't know what he's saying. I'm not trying to be flippant or a jerk about this at all. Did you know most Christians don't read their Bibles? How can you know what God wants to say to your life if you don't read your Bible? Read your Bible. (laughs) Read your Bible and pray every single day. That's what my pastor used to say to me. I hated it because he'd say it in a little rhyme. Read your Bible and pray every single day. And I'd be like, that's so dumb. And then like, I'd be doing something and be like, read your Bible and pray every single day. So what do I teach my kids when they're little? Read your Bible and pray. Every but guys, here's the key to walking with Jesus. Read your Bible and pray every single day. You, you walk with Jesus. You get alone with him. You learn to hear his voice. You learn his word, what it means. And listen, you also follow Jesus in the context of community. And I want to say that because there's no such thing as a Christian separated from the body of Christ. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That is absolutely true. But you cannot find a Christian in the New Testament a biblical Christian that is separated from the community of the believers. Because we need the community of believers to help us because many times it's through that community, through words of prophecy and the gifts of the Spirit that you discover the will of God for your life in specific ways. We could go on and on about that. So there's practical things that we could talk about, but this is what I just want to get down to. I'll just kind of wrap it up. Back to where I said I wanted to go in the first place. Peter looks around. Jesus, what about this guy? Peter, if I want him to live until I come back, what's it to you? You follow me. Now that just went from an invitation to an exhortation. Earlier it was follow me. Now it's like you follow me. (laughs) I think this is the word, please listen. If I lost you, please come back. I believe tonight Jesus is saying to some of us in this room, you follow me. And that might hit you in a lot of different contexts. Let me give you a couple of suggestions. Maybe you're like Peter and you've failed real bad. Maybe you've failed in an area you've been failing in a lot lately. You've even promised God you'd never do it again and you did it again. And maybe you're feeling a bit condemned and maybe you feel like, I I guess I'm the, the one case that can out-sin the grace of God. And I want to say to you tonight that Jesus wants to restore you, forgive you, and look you in the eye and say, you come and follow me. Amen? Maybe you're here tonight and you used to follow Jesus. Maybe there was a time in your life where you were passionate about the Lord and you were walking with him. And for whatever reason, the busyness of life and this is whatever has gotten you, pulled you away and you hear Jesus' voice saying to you tonight, okay, now it's time for you to, to actually follow me. No more playing church, no more dabbling in Christianity. It's time to be a follower. Come. Aren't you glad he's saying, Jesus isn't saying, go do this stuff for me. He's saying, come with me and let's go together. I'm asking you to come and follow me. And for some of you, He's calling you out of the shallows into the deep and he's saying, come tonight, start following me. For others, the moment that I said, you follow me or I read those words, you follow me, maybe that was a confirmation in your heart because Jesus is calling you to some kind of ministry and people are discouraging you from it. People, other people are saying, no, don't do that or that's too radical or this or that and the Lord is saying, no, I'm not asking you to do what your folks say. I'm not asking you to do what your friends say. I'm not asking you to do. You come and you go where I'm going. You count the cost and you follow me. Because guys, at the end of the day, we're not going to stand with our church before Jesus. We're not going to stand with our friends before Jesus. We're going to stand mano a mano with Jesus and give an account of our life that we obeyed him. And that should be one very exciting, kind of terrifying And Jesus is confirming to you tonight, you're hearing his voice, he's saying, I am telling you, you come and you follow me. Maybe some of you don't even know Christ and tonight he's saying, I want you to be one of my disciples. I want you to put your faith in me tonight. Tonight is the night of salvation for you. You come and you follow me, amen? However the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, I I want you to respond to it. We have a big mistake sometimes we make at church. We do our sermon, we say a prayer, we bolt out the door and we don't give place for the Spirit of God to seal into our hearts what he's trying to do. I'm gonna ask, uh, Austin, can you come up, just maybe even play in the background a little bit or whatever and we're just gonna do a song or just have some music and I wanna invite you to do something. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you tonight about Something specifically, if you're hearing his voice to you, you might say, you know, I know he's talking to Peter, and I know you're talking to a lot of people in the room, but Jesus is actually talking to me tonight. It might be like I'm the only one here, because tonight he said to me, you come and follow me. And it wasn't with a tone of, of anger or a tone of discipline, it was a tone of love and grace and invitation to be a part of what he's doing, and he's saying to you, come and follow me. Don't dabble. Let's go. Amen? So what I'm going to ask you to do, since we've all thrown social distancing to the wind tonight, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. In a moment, I'm going to have a stand. And if you need to just do business with Jesus, if you just need to talk to him, and I'm, going to, I'm going to create something that's going to make you exercise some faith. I'm going to ask you to walk down and kneel down in the front. There's nothing more spiritual about this zone or anything right here but it's just the act of stepping out in faith and acknowledging maybe just between you and God, saying, I hear you, and I'm not sure what it all means right now, but I hear you speaking to me, and I'm responding tonight. We just had the carpets cleaned, so you got nothing to worry about. I want you, if you need to come and just get on your face before God and talk to him, I believe Jesus is saying to some tonight, you come and follow me. Forget about what I'm doing in other people. Forget about that. What's he saying to you tonight? Respond to it. Let's all stand and worship and come and seek him with all of our guts.